Alright. Now, we are going through the book of 1 Peter, which is very, very relevant for our church, because 1 Peter was written to a church of people who were just tasting the beginning of persecution. And they were not enduring physical persecution quite yet. They were enduring hostility from the surrounding culture. That's us today. That is Christians today. Not quite physical persecution, but increasing hostility by the surrounding culture today. <clears throat> now we're in a section, particularly in 1 Peter, where Peter's instructing his readers in the five churches he's writing to about the call in their lives. As Christians, they are called, because they're saved, to be holy as their Heavenly Father is holy. If they are children, if they are sons and daughters, they're called to reflect the character of their Father. That's the logic of holiness. Then he talked about not only is God your Father, but this is your brethren, and these are your sisters as well. So because God is your Father, and because this is your family, practice earnestly loving one another as if they were truly brothers and sisters. And we talked about that last week. Earnest love for the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. I was just talking to Gary the other day, I think we were talking about that, that the weight of love in the New Testament goes first to the brethren and then to the world. Paul says, I think in Galatians, he says, um, show love to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So look around among us. This is where the this center of our love should be. The center of our affection, the, the center of our self-sacrifice that God calls us to is in this room right now as a local church. <clears throat> Now, what Peter is going to teach us today is the ultimate grounds, the ultimate grounds for holiness and love. There's something that goes beyond holiness because God is our Father, and holiness because Gary is my brother, or love because Gary is my brother. <clears throat> there's, a, there's even a higher theological grounding for holiness and love. What is that? I think if we look at 1 Peter today, we're going to see the ultimate grounds for the Christian life. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Read with me. <clears throat> As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, 
<clears throat> but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would add your blessing to the preaching of your word today. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. In this passage, Peter describes the church as stones, which are part of a superstructure of God's building project. <clears throat> and he calls us priests as well. So we're stones and priests. And what Peter is doing is he is teaching the congregations and us about the nature and the purpose of the church. The ultimate nature and the ultimate purpose of the church. Now I think if we look at Peter's words very closely today, it's going to show you, convince you, or remind you that the church is saved and built on Christ in order to make God's name great in the world. That's the ultimate grounds I think we'll see for our salvation. It is to, we say, glorify God. That's what I mean by God, make, God, make God's name great. Do you know, you know what kavod in the, in the Hebrew glory is? It means weightiness. It means heaviness to God's name. There, there is a heaviness, not in a, not in a sense that, that drags us down, but we add weight to his name. He is not a light thing in our eyes. Glory means weightiness. So, I want to cover this under a few headings. Number one, the foundation of the church. Then the structure of the church. Then those who are not part of the foundation. And finally, the purpose of the church. So first, the foundation of the church. We see in verse 4, clearly articulated by Peter, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. In 33 AD, or 30 AD, around that area, well, really, earlier than that, maybe 3 AD, if you want to talk about Christ's birth, God began a new building project. And the first stone he laid, the cornerstone, was Jesus Christ. In order to see this clearly, I would like you to turn to Matthew 21, verses 33 through 43. Matthew 21, verse 33 through 43.
what this is going to show is that Jesus is the cornerstone of God's new building project. <clears throat> and here's the parable Jesus gives us. Starting at verse 33. Jesus says, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. And the tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same. And finally, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, See, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The servants that Jesus talks about, who were stoned and killed, are prophets that God sent to Israel, and who Israel consistently rejected. Christ, however, is the Son, who was rejected and killed. And then Jesus quotes the psalm that says that he is the cornerstone that was rejected. And the cornerstone would be, in the ancient times, the first stone laid, it would be like a stone that kind of looks like that, and other stones would be squared by the cornerstone. And it would be the first stone of a foundation. And Jesus said, The kingdom will be taken away from you, the Jewish leaders, and given to a people producing its fruits. So Jesus, the main point I'd like you to understand is that Jesus is the rejected stone who is chosen and precious by God, rejected by men, in the world's building project, but he is the foundational and first stone laid in the new building project, which does not include the Jewish leadership of the day. One more passage. You don't have to turn there. But this was the, the mindset of the apostles' preaching, that God had done a new thing in Jesus Christ. He is building something new, and you either join him or you are crushed by the stone. You either fall on the stone or you are crushed by the stone. In Acts 4, 8 through 12, Peter, it says that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, this is after they healed the lame man, rulers and people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <coughs> so, Peter also seizes upon this concept of Jesus as the stone. He is the stone that God is building a new building with, and he, there is no other name under heaven. <coughs> so, Jesus is the foundation of God's new building. That's verse 4, and it helps us understand the logic of verse four, 5. Let's go to verse 5. So, in the sight of God, Jesus is chosen and precious, but you yourselves... <coughs> like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 5, Peter calls us two things. He calls the church two, he gives two images. Number one, stones, and number two, priests. <coughs> Pray for my throat, that I can finish this sermon. So, the church is stones and priests. Stones, living stones, because Christ's resurrection is also our resurrection, because we're united to him, right? And we, we all know about union with Christ in this church, Amen. That it's more than justification. Oh, as beautiful as justification is. But you are justified and given life in virtue of being connected to God's life. That's the big superstructure and logic of salvation. That you're united to Christ in a metaphysical way. Like a branch is united to a tree. You're united to Christ so that the vitality in life of Christ flows through you. So we're living stones and we represent as living stones us Christians are being built into a spiritual house, Peter says. In the Old Testament, the temple was called the house of the Lord. Remember, the house of the Lord. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. In Ecclesiastes 5.1, we're told and warned, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That was the temple. So the house of the Lord is very <clears throat> weighty. Why? Because God's presence is there. That's where the intent, that's where God's presence is focused and centered in the house of the Lord, an active but now, in this New Covenant, New Testament era, God is building a spiritual house. That, that means, with living stones, that's you and me, 
God is constructing a spiritual house. So we are the, we comprise the house of God, meaning that when two or three of us are gathered together, that Christ's presence is in our midst in a powerful and unique way. That is why, as we think about coming to the Lord's Supper today, we are warned to examine ourselves and discern the body when we come. Just like you should guard your steps before you go to the house of the Lord in the Old Testament, so you should examine yourself and discern the body when you approach the Lord's table because Christ's presence is in our midst in virtue of the fact that we are gathered together and being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul says this exact thing in Ephesians 2, 20-22. He says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, get this, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's that building imagery again. The us together, we are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God still has a temple. And the temple now is the church vivified by Christ's Spirit with Christ's presence in her midst. Peter also calls us priests. And I think the word priests shows us what we are built for. So we're not just built to be a structure for God's presence to dwell in in a powerful way, but we're priests. Paul Peter says that we are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the priests, in the Old Testament, the priests had access to God, and the purpose of their priesthood was to offer sacrifices. That's why they were priests, and that's what they would do. In the New Covenant era, everyone with the Spirit of God, who calls on the name of the Lord, who has faith in Christ, is a priest and has direct access to God and is called to offer spiritual sacrifices. Every Christian is a priest. In In the Reformation era, the Reformers talked about the priesthood of all believers. This is what separates us from Catholics. The problem with Catholicism is a serious one. <clears throat> and what they do, what they teach, is that there must be prayer given to certain saints, and the priests are seen as mediators between us and God. But what Peter is teaching us here is that the church and the individual members of the church are made a priesthood. 
because we have du direct, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> direct access to God by the Spirit. So, that is the main problem as I see it. There are others with Roman Catholicism. They set up intermediaries other than Jesus Christ between us and God. That is a very dangerous thing to do and it is what the reformers used to reform the church. You don't need to do your, your holiness through a priest or through a saint. You go right to the Father through Jesus Christ. <coughs> now, the point of the priesthood, Peter says, is to offer spiritual sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. A spiritual sacrifice would be a sacrifice of the self. Mm -hmm. like, like Paul says in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. As I've said before, don't over-spiritualize spirituality. <clears throat> Paul, when he talks about spiritual sacrifices, he then talks about your bodies. <clears throat> that means your tongue. That means other members of your body which you can glorify God with <clears throat> or dishonor God with. Sacrifice yourself to the Lord. Be a sacrifice for him. It's not just about honoring and dishonoring, although that's true. It's about sacrificing and wanting to make spiritual sacrifices to, as a free will offering for the Lord. To glorify his name. Hebrews talks about worship as a sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. <clears throat> when you come to worship, offer up a sacrifice of praise. And pray, Lord, I ask that I would be able to sing and to please you with my whole heart. And this might be acceptable to you. May this be a sacrifice of praise. And may you be glorified in the heavens by the saints singing today. Spiritual sacrifices, I think, is a... You can think of it as a spirit-driven impulse or desire to make God's name great and to build up his church. <clears throat> a spiritual sacrifice is thanksgiving and praise. You can make spiritual sacrifices with your money. You can make spiritual sacrifices with your time and effort to advance God's cause. You can make spiritual sacrifices by sharing your possessions or building up the brotherhood. See anything you do as an opportunity to sacrifice for God, to put something on the altar and allow it to burn for God's glory. So, I want to encourage you to think about what you can put on the altar. And are, are you... <clears throat> we don't want our sacrifices to be like Cain's, right? The least we could do, not acceptable to God. 
Make a sacrifice like Abel that costs you something, that adds weightiness to his name, where the fire and the flame grows hot and burns brightly because of the immensity of the sacrifice. That is something that God is glorified by. So, we have the foundation. The structure of the foundation is the church. What about those who are not part of the foundation? <clears throat> we get to that in verse 7. So, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Why do those, in this passage, just look at the passage, why do those who do not share the honor with the church not have the honor? As I see it, there are two reasons. Number one, they stumble over and reject Jesus Christ. Right? The honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. <clears throat> so, to some, Jesus will be the cornerstone. To others, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And when you talk about the gospel, you must make Jesus the stumbling stone. I know I've said this many times before too. Don't just linger on God talk. <clears throat> Everyone's going to agree with you about God or some higher power. The question is, has God revealed himself? Is there a way to him? And how do we know how to live before him? And Jesus Christ is the answer to all three. God is revealed in Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And he is the ruler. I found it very, those are the three R's. Jesus is the revealer, reconciler, and ruler. I found it very helpful when talking with unbelievers or pan-believers to talk about Jesus in those terms. How do we know God? How can we be right with him? How should we then live? Revealer, reconciler, ruler. Because Christ is the stumbling stone. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He didn't give us another option. And that is the stone. So you either build your life on that truth, or you stumble over that truth. <clears throat> so, that's the first reason. And that's the hope, that's the this earthly reason why people do not have the honor, because they stumble over Jesus Christ. The second reason I see in this passage that the people stumble <clears throat> and they do not have the honor is in the last part of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is a hard truth, but it is a truth taught in Scripture. 
that people, I believe what Peter is saying is that people <clears throat> who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who stumble over him, reject him, mock him, insult him and his bride, and who never come to him, ultimately do so because they were destined to do so. Destined means it was their destination all along. The word destined in the Greek just means a set in place. It means to a point. And I think this does teach election and reprobation. We see that in Jude 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, Jude says, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. There's reprobation since the foundations of the earth. <clears throat> Acts 13.48 clearly teaches election in my view. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I think the logical structure of Romans 9 also teaches election since the foundations of the world. This is a hard thing, and in this church we allow different views on this. But, if you want to know what your pastor thinks, I think the Bible clearly teaches election and reprobation. Clearly. The problem is I see it in a lot of theological discussions. Especially, don't, don't linger on, on YouTube channels of people who, who just wanted to start a channel. They really don't know what they're talking about. Um, a lot of these people are looking for something certain. And they, they kind of shy away from election, and so they're, they try to fit election in some kind of a corporate frame corporate election, or they try to fit these passages into other ways of understanding because they don't, they don't like it or they're trying to rationalize it. And I have found that many people will trade truth for certainty when doing theology. Maybe I've been guilty of that at times too. But as Bible believers, let us not trade truth for certainty. Yes, we want a coherent theological system. We want all the pieces to fit. <clears throat> but when you look at passages like this, ask yourself, what is the truth? What is the truth being taught here? So don't trade truth for certainty. Perhaps you might have an incomplete theological system and give that to the Lord. Why? Because the secret things belong to the Lord. Our job is to just believe the word that he's given us. Now, so there, when I say election and reprobation, for those who may be not exactly sure what I'm talking about, I am saying that since the foundation of the world, before time began, God elected certain persons to be saved, and did not elect others or consigned or appointed others to be damned. That is a hard thing. I don't, I don't rejoice in others being damned. I'm not one of these guys that just like, just love that. Um, but I, it is a truth I see in the Bible. The theological question 
is not whether election is being taught in the Bible. I think it is. The theological question is the nature, the how of election. Um, is election, does election mean that God stamps hell or heaven on somebody and then sends them down to earth? I think a lot of our Calvinist brethren conceive of election that way. <clears throat> but I see other passages that add complexity to the matter, such as what Peter says in 2 Peter, God wants all people to be saved and come to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now the question is not which verse is true, right? The way to do theology is how to get these truths together, to bind them into a synthesis. That's how you do theology. And I think, I think the answer lies in God's omniscience. That is to say, before God created Bob, he knew whether Bob was going to freely reject him or freely accept him. If I placed Bob in this world, if I created a Bob and placed him in this world, will he reject me or will he accept me? He knew exactly what Bob was going to do. Therefore, I think it follows logically that by creating Bob and placing him in this world, God has, in effect, elected Bob's destiny. And I think, that, I, think, I think that is the way I've come to understand the nature of election. So not whether election is true, it's how does election work. Ultimately, that's where I lean. I do not pretend to know the mind of God. Um, and maybe you could help me figure it out. <clears throat> I'm open to that. But I want to encourage you as a Bible reader, and in, in this church, I want to encourage honesty with the scripture, and then doing theology in a way that tries to bring the truths together. I think Peter clearly teaches here that the reason people stumble is because they were destined to do, they were set in place or appointed. You want to talk about that more? I'd love to talk about that more with you after service. Election should be a comfort for you. Also, the Bible often holds out election as a comfort. You were chosen, you were elected since the foundation of the world. And that is a great truth to embrace, not, not lament that other people, it is, in the Bible it's presented as a truth to embrace and to thank God for. <clears throat> There's so much we could say about that, but we do need to move on to the purpose of the church now. In 9 and 10. So others were destined to not receive Jesus Christ. But verse 9. But you, brethren, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. The church is chosen to proclaim the excellencies of God. These phrases that Peter uses, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, are drawn from Exodus 19.6 and Isaiah 43, 20-21. 20 
and they are meant to describe the church as the object of God's love and affection. <clears throat> These are covenantal terms that were used of Israel and now are transferred to Gentile Christians in Asia Minor, and by extension, us sitting in Shotan cinemas who have faith in Christ. <clears throat> chosen nation. Israel was the chosen nation. Now the churches. Priesthood. Like I said, only priests could access God. Now we all can. And we are holy and set apart. So these are covenantal expressions <clears throat> of God's affection for you. We are the new spiritual Israel, Paul says. <coughs> and all of those benefits because of Jesus Christ, all of the blessings of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And if you're united to Christ, you have those blessings. And the purpose, Peter says, that we're saved for is to proclaim God's excellence. That means to make his name great in your life and in this church to proclaim his excellence that's why you were saved <clears throat> I was listening to a sermon a few days ago and we need to recapture an evangelicalism God-centeredness in our theology I heard someone talk about salvation the pastor said guys I want you to tell what salvation is salvation is holistic healing of the person I said, what? Holistic healing of the person? That sounds like you're going to a massage parlor. The point of your salvation is that you might make God's name great. It's that you might glorify God. Why does the Lord lead you in paths of righteousness? Psalm 23. For his name's sake. Paul says... That the reason he wants to evangelize is so that it might increase praises to the glory of God. We are taught to pray, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done. We are a people purified for his own possession. So in this church, let God-centered theology be the driving force of your life. Yes, there is healing. And yes, that's important. But the, when we are talking about ultimate things, it is that God's name be lifted up and glorified in our life. So, how can God be glorified <clears throat> with my mornings how can God be glory how can I make God's name great with my mornings start with going down how can I make God's name great and awesome with my money I know that's the second time I mentioned money today and I am not telling you to tie the more but I am asking you to think about how you glorify God with your offering or our cry missionary society or the brotherhood here in secret and significant giving or 
someone you know who is in need. So that is not just, that's not just a word for offering. That's a word for you to consider your whole financial life. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. If I get sick and <clears throat> I have cancer, how can God be glorified in my cancer? That's a tough thing. But how can I make God's name great? Not curse God and die, but to go down fighting for faith and glorifying God and singing his praises in trust and love. I'm going to send you all an email with an excellent, an excellent talk John Piper gave about um, preparing you know, to meet the Lord as he ages. An amazing little talk he gave for senior citizens. I listened to it, <clears throat> but I was, even though I'm not a senior citizen yet, and even if you're not that old yet, I want you to listen to this. I'm going to email it to you. It was very, very encouraging. And he talks about that very thing. How can God's name be lifted up as I age? So, I hope that helps you understand the nature and the purpose of the church. <clears throat> the church is built on Christ. And we are a people who have been made priests to offer spiritual sacrifices. You are saved to, to sacrifice for the Lord. Now that you're saved, you have a duty. It is to honor Him and serve Him. And find your joy in doing so. And it is to make God's name great in your life and the life of the church. So, consider how you might do these things with areas of your life, such as money, fatherhood, marriage, church. <clears throat> Let everything you do be done in the aunt, whether you eat or drink. Do it all for God's glory. Let this be an all-encompassing reality in your life, I pray.